If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood was an artistic movement founded in 1848 that pushed the boundaries of realism and scandalised society at the time. But why did they become so famous? Did Elizabeth Siddle really almost die in a bathtub when she modelled for John Everett Millet's Ophelia? And which Rossetti painting most shocked the art establishment? These are just some of the questions that Eleanor Evans put to Suzanne Fagents Cooper in today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode. Suzanne, thank you so much for joining me. Can we start with who were the Pre-Raphaelites and when were they? It's lovely to be here to have a chance to explore the Pre-Raphaelites in a bit of detail. So they were a group of young artists and writers who gathered together in the late 1840s in London. They were mostly men. They called themselves the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. But Christina Rossetti, the poet, was also involved. Both of her brothers were sort of members of the Brotherhood. And so she was also able to contribute to their magazine, which they called The Germ, some of her poetry alongside her brothers and alongside the drawings that the artists made. So it was a a really sort of radical grouping of young people, they deliberately set out to push back against the teachings of the Royal Academy schools in London. They set out to encourage people to read different sorts of poetry. Um, They were very excited, for example, about the poetry of Keats and the Young Romantics, which was quite novel. And so we get this sense of energy and of enthusiasm and also youthfulness. I think they were you know, that kind of almost teenage, some of them, rebels, they wanting to make their mark in the Victorian art world. So seven men um, whose names were put to the original sort of manifesto. There was a sculptor, uh, Thomas Woolner. Uh, There were artists. The three main people that most people will have heard about were Dante Gabriel Rossetti, John Everett Millet, and William Holman Hunt. And those three all brought their own idiosyncrasies to the group and as a result it was a real kind of mishmash of realism and poetry and spirituality um, and this sense of being able to develop a new range of ideas in British art that were stepping away from the historic and stepping away from the continental. They were going to reshape British art, that was the idea. 
Right, so a very clear group there, a, a mission, if you like. How did they come to come across one another? How did this brotherhood come to be formed? Well, two of them were genuinely brothers. So William Michael Rossetti and Dante Gabriel Rossetti had grown up in a very artistic household, uh, well, a, a literary household, I suppose. Their father was a, a scholar of, of Dante, the medieval poet. William Michael became a critic and kind of the the person who wrote down the history of the Pre-Raphaelites as they became famous and then as they went their separate ways, he became the person who gathered all their letters and their diaries and kind of set the mark for the later 19th and into the 20th century. Dante Gabriel Rossetti was training to be an artist, but he was very reluctant to go down the traditional Royal Academy schools route. Um, But he was exhibiting and drawing and attracted the attention of John Everett Millet, who was also at the Royal Academy um, schools and was trying out new ideas, this this focus on poetry as a as a subject. And so they they started chatting. William Holman Hunt sort of was also part of that that group of art students. And then on the on the edges, there were people like Ford Maddox Brown, who um, was a little bit older, already established to a certain extent as an artist, and giving them some some tips as to how to, you know, enter the art world professionally. So they would get together late night, you know, chatting, sharing their dreams, sharing their enthusiasms, talking about going travelling together, reading poetry to each other. I mean, it is quite adolescent, some of it, but there's also a charm of this excitement that they could, they were skilled, they were able to have a voice as a group and to become visible. So 1848 was the when they sort of came together as a as a brotherhood and put you know started putting PRB pre-Raphaelite brotherhood on their pictures and started to think about making their own magazine and so you know through the late 1840s into the early 1850s their works were being seen particularly in London and they were attracting critical notice because they were quite shocking in their realism in some ways quite shocking in their choices of medieval subjects or sometimes modern subjects, William Holman Hunt choosing modern subjects of fallen women, for example. So all of these things, you know, they were trying to create a buzz around their work and it was helped by the input of John Ruskin, another young art critic, also trying to make his name, who had originally worked on Turner's, um, you know, career and then was pivoting to be involved with the pre-Raphaelites and really fascinated by what they could do. And with John Ruskin's critical support, they also made a splash. So you get this wonderful sort of interlocking of biographies. You know, you get the visual, but you also get the biographical and the poetry all all mixing together when you start to engage with their work. Um, can we touch quickly on the name? Because we had a question from Susie1340 on, on X, who's asked about the name and what were they trying to do? What were they harking back to with this, this brand of the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood? So what is quite unusual is that they were giving themselves a name. Uh, they were setting themselves apart as an avant-garde group by, you know, creating this kind of manifesto. And they chose the idea of, of pre-Raphael because they wanted to go back to looking at art before 1500, before this moment where Raphael becomes, I mean, understandably, they loved Raphael's work. But as John Ruskin says, Raphael is started to be held up 
between the artist and nature. So artists are looking at how Raphael paints things and not looking out of the window at what a tree really looks like, you know, what rain looks like, what a, a face looks like. What they wanted to get back to is this wonderful phrase that Ruskin uses, the innocent eye. So just turning aside from all the layers of, of academic history post-Raphael, all the kind of mannerism and Baroque, and choosing something which is much more raw, much more direct in, in their eyes. And so also a, tuning in to a fascination with the Gothic, which the medieval world, which they weren't the only people uh, interested in 14th, 15th century visual art and, and poetry, but they were probably the most deliberate about it, coming together as a group and saying, we're going to look at the work of people like Giotto. We're going to look at the work of these early Italian artists and French artists and Belgian artists. They were fascinated by people like Van Eyck and this ability to paint beautiful, realistic, direct works of art, enjoying the natural world and not just thinking about triangular composition and the way that the light falls in a classical painting. So they have this kind of tension between realism and medievalism. And it's one of the reasons why the group sort of doesn't hold together for all that long, because the different people within the group start to sort of follow their own paths. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. eBay gets it, so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love, and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I know we're obviously an audio medium here, but I guess for listeners who might not have seen one of the pre-Raphaelite paintings when they were sort of more cohesive together in that group, I suppose, how can be characterised? You've mentioned light, you've mentioned the, the way they perceive the real. One of the most famous of their works of art is uh, John Everett Millet's painting of Ophelia. And I think that brings together so many elements. So you've got a Shakespearean subject, you have a fixation on um, Ophelia is singing as she floats and dies down a little stream. She's just fallen into the water. She didn't actually intend to fall in the water. She was sitting on a, a willow branch and the willow branch cracked and she ends up in the water. So there's a, a melancholy there, there's a tragedy there. These are all elements that they, you know, the sentiments that that mattered to the artists. Also the fixation on the natural world. So John Everett Millet goes down to a stream um, in Surrey and he paints all the, the flowers beside the stream and the overhanging leaves and the play of the water. And he, he in fact gets the model, who's Elizabeth Siddle, to lie in a bath of water in the dress where she is. I mean, this is truth to nature. This is really trying to get it absolutely accurate. How does a dress look when it is soaked? How does a model look when she is cold and wet and still beautiful? I think with Millet, he gets that balance right between, you know, the bold colour, the beautiful delicacy, and also that emotion, that sentiment. At the heart of many of their works of art, of course, you get this balance of poetry and the visual, but you also get the beautiful woman. And these are young men, 
They're also wanting to sell their works of art. They know that pictures of beautiful women are attractive. They will make a splash on the walls of the Royal Academy or wherever they're showing. So, you know, why not? Why not use all these things coming together and make a work of art like Ophelia, which still has the power to move us, to make us really get close up to the work of art, you know, almost like our noses against the canvas, trying to pick our way through all the beautiful flowers and leaves and the lace on her dress. It's an extraordinary portrait of a young woman. And I think that's why people still come back to the Ophelia. It's a, it's a remarkable painting. And one thing, obviously, from that we can glean is that Ophelia is painted with red hair. Lizzie Siddle had red hair. We had quite a few questions about the Pre-Raphaelites and their association with red hair. Where does that come from? I think one of the reasons they choose models with red hair is because it does make them stand out. The women that, in particular that they choose as models are not defined as pretty by most Victorian artists or the public. They would not have been traditionally seen as beautiful. And I think the Pre-Raphaelites have, have changed our opinion of that to a certain extent. It's, you know, so when Elizabeth Siddle is first pictured by one of their friends who's called Water Howell Deverell. She's actually dressed up as a boy and her red hair is meant to make her be, be noticed. There's another painting by Millet which shows uh, the figure of the Christ child with red hair. And this was really shocking. Someone like Charles Dickens gets very upset that the Christ child is not classically beautiful and that particularly the Virgin Mary is not classically beautiful, that she is or looks like a working class woman who's, you know, helping out in a carpenter's studio. You know, these things were designed to um, shake people up. I think then you get this, because of the love affair between Elizabeth Siddle and Gabriel Rossetti, uh, and he becomes obsessed with picturing her, with drawing her, and then also with painting her. Elizabeth Siddle becomes associated in his mind with the figure of uh, Dante's beloved Beatrice from the poem Paradiso and Vita Nuova. Other artists find models with not necessarily deep red hair, but sort of strawberry blonde hair. So someone like Fanny Cornforth has amazing hair. And in some pictures, it's quite blonde. And in some pictures, it's much redder. So I think it was to make them really stand out in the crowd of, of paintings. If you went into the Royal Academy in the 1850s, early 1850s, then the, the walls of the academy were just floor to ceiling packed with pictures. They are trying to make their mark. They're trying to say something that is different and, and choosing models with red hair helps with that. You also get this point after Elizabeth Siddle dies in 1862, where she becomes sort of a posthumous heroine of the Pre-Raphaelites. So people later on sort of paint versions of her, and her red hair is one of the characteristics of her, her ivory skin, her red hair. What they forget, of course, is Elizabeth Siddle was also a painter herself and also quite a, an acerbic character, quite a pushy character, quite a a sarcastic person and somebody who wanted to make a mark in her own way. So her own personality gets sort of uh, subdued under the remembrance of her as just a, this beautiful, silent, dying creature, which is, you know, one of the 
the problems of the pre-Raphaelites that we get so many myths associated with them, so many ways in which they're misremembered. Well, I, I hope we can go into a lot more of those myths. You mentioned Elizabeth Siddle's relationship with Dante Gabriel Rossetti. I don't obviously want to reduce her to just this, but I think their relationships are a really, really interesting part of how they lived, how they rebelled in, in society. Can we go a little bit more into that, that sort of sense of their lifestyle? So I think it's very interesting that all of the artists, their biographies are as complex and as radical as their pictures in many ways. Even someone like John Everett Millet, who, you know, everyone said dressed like a bank clerk and was terribly respectable and became a baronet in later life. You know, he had a complicated relationship with Effie Gray, who he married after she left her husband, John Ruskin. So, you know, that was not a straightforward romance. Um, Ford Maddox Brown, his wife had been his model and had had children with him before they got married, but was, you know, they were still part of the circle, very hospitable, would invite these young men before they got married, you know, round for dinner. And Emma Maddox Brown would be, you know, entertaining them with her stories as well as Ford Maddox Brown sort of guiding them. So you get these, this sense of classlessness in some ways in the art world, not entirely. But there's a sense that people from the working class entered the studio as models or, you know, in practical ways, and then became sort of caught up with the poetry, with the the making of things, with the, the selling of things from the studio. So you see this, particularly in the case of Elizabeth Siddle, but also with uh, someone a little later on, like Jane Burden, who became uh, William Morris's wife, Jane Morris, and also ha later on had a relationship with uh, Gabriel Rossetti, another working class woman who found that the artist studio gave her opportunities to learn and to travel and, you know, expand herself in the same way as Elizabeth Siddle did. I think that Elizabeth Siddle has caught the imagination because she is also a poet, although most people didn't know that during her own lifetime. Her work was not published uh, until after she died. She was also a watercolourist. Quite recently, Tate has had uh, an exhibition called The Rosettes, where Elizabeth Siddle's work has been put on display alongside the work of her husband, Gabriel Rossetti. And you see that it actually stands up pretty well. You know, she is producing works of art that are unusual, quite spiky, quite amateur, some people might say, because she didn't go to art school. She didn't have the life drawing classes. But they also have this kind of medieval directness. And she was choosing subjects from things like the border ballads, which are often about magic, about women's empowerment through magic. Her work was exhibited alongside the men's when a group of art was sent to America in 1857. Unfortunately, she died in 1862, probably of a, a, a drugs overdose. It's unclear whether that was deliberate or not. And because of that, she has become this kind of uh, tragic figure rather than a figure who has been seen as as full of possibilities and 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 life and and artistic potential. 
And you've written about women involved in this movement. Obviously, we're talking about them today. And I should recommend listeners to an episode of the History Extra podcast. We talked about William and Jane Morris as well a couple of years back. So if you're interested in hearing more about Jane particularly, please do go and and give that a listen. So to return to the pieces of art themselves, then, you've mentioned they were courting a bit of controversy intentionally in some ways. What other sort of controversies hit them? Well, one of the difficulties was the relationship with John Ruskin, because he very much wanted to guide the artists and to take them under his wing. And he did this particularly with John Everett Millet and invited him to go on holiday with Ruskin's wife Effie as well. And so this became very difficult because they went up to Scotland and it just rained the whole time. And Ruskin was very much involved with editing his book, The Stones of Venice, which is, if anybody wants to understand this fascination with the Gothic, with the way in which the Gothic is is elevated to the ideal manner of, of, of making art, then The Stones of Venice, which Ruskin was writing in the early 1850s, really does bring that to life. But because he was so fixated on that, he really wasn't paying any attention to Effie or to John Everett Millet, who was trying to paint uh, Ruskin's portrait. And so the two of them basically fell in love. And because the Ruskin marriage was so, well, it was never consummated and it was a, a, a failing marriage. And when everyone returned to London, Effie was able to get an annulment from that marriage. And a discreet time later, she and John Everett Millet were able to marry and move to Scotland. But partly because of that, the relationships that Millet had with his other sort of brothers in the Brotherhood were starting to pull apart. He had, you know, he was leaving for for Scotland. Um, he was getting married. He was trying to focus on a different sort of painting, not so medieval, much more to do with using his talents as a as a realistic painter and as a painter of, of emotion. And so he and Rossetti started to sort of pull in different directions. And then you get this sort of worry about some of the paintings that Rossetti is making, that they were too Roman Catholic, they were too papist in the terms of the time, and that this was not healthy, this was not British, this was not acceptable to be, you know, seen on the walls of the Royal Academy or in the British Institution or wherever he was exhibiting. Rossetti is a slightly odd character because he doesn't really like to exhibit his work much. He likes to have a little sort of cosy group of patrons around him who just buy directly. He doesn't really like to put himself out there. So there's a sort of mystery that he, you know, self-induced mystery around Rossetti in many ways. You know, there's this sense of otherness about his work in particular, which, you know, people are slightly concerned about. Um, but he liked that sense of being talked about. He liked the sense of, of being set apart from the mainstream. That was what he wanted. How else does Rossetti cultivate the sense of mystery or outsidership or, you know, whatever he's going for? So Rossetti has this idea that he doesn't want to exhibit alongside other people. He wants to uh, write as a poet as well as uh, presenting himself as as a painter. And his poetry in particular is, by the 18... 70s is seen as extremely 
disturbing in some ways because it's very sensual and he gets criticised for what is written about. There's a review that describes Rossetti's work as the fleshly school of poetry and this is a really distressing thing for him because it points out you know the way in which he focuses on the physicality of the people he's writing about, their close physical relationships. He writes about poems called Nuptial Sleep, which is basically about sex um, and the aftermath of sex. And these things are, he's not the only person to be doing it, but he's one of the most visible people to be doing it because he has this sort of joint career as a poet as, as well as a painter. And I think that for him, he he also is concerned about being criticised for his paintings. And so he he doesn't like to stand alone. He, you know, he's one of the instigators of that first group of brothers in the late 1840s. And then when they start to break up by the 1850s, mid-1850s, he starts to gather a new group of young people around him, young artists around him, who will appeal to him as a mentor who will listen to him talk about poetry and art. And so you get the second generation of pre-Raphaelites. And this is where the term becomes quite complex because it doesn't usually just apply to those young people from 1848. It also then applies to a whole sort of swathe of artists who are interested in Dante and Shakespeare, um, are interested in early, what they would call early Christian art um, from the pre-Raphael world, and particularly people like Burne-Jones, Edward Burne-Jones and uh, William Morris. William Morris, not really even a painter at all, but still a poet, uh, and Edward Burne-Jones painting in a style which is so different from, say, William Holman Hunt or uh, John Everett Millay, Edward Burne-Jones painting works which are much more about spirituality and poetry and in a classical tradition, but yet still labelled as pre-Raphaelite because of his relationship with Rossetti. So Rossetti is in a way the kind of linchpin around which you can sort of imagine all these different artists and poets and critics gathering. And that's what he wanted. You know, he, he loved having an entourage you mentioned some tensions between uh, him and John Everett Millet. Is that the sort of thing playing into why the original pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood is splitting or diverging? What's happening there? So there's this moment in around 1857 where it all looks like it's going wonderfully well because, you know, they've got an exhibition as a group in America. They've got this uh, really beautiful illustrated edition of Tennyson, which is coming out. It's published by a publisher called Moxon, and you can still get reproductions of it. Um, so many of the different artists contributed their works of art. So they were illustrating Tennyson's poems like The Lady of Shalott. They were illustrating the Mort d'Arthur, uh, the story of King Arthur. And you see them all together, this wonderful line drawings by Holman Hunt and Millet and Rossetti. So you think it's all going to be wonderful, but actually it's pulling apart with, you've got Holman Hunt wanting to travel overseas. He wants to go to the Holy Land because he's becoming really focused on painting as if from life, the stories from the Bible. And it matters to him, you know, in the same way that Millet went down to a stream in Surrey to look at the background for Ophelia. For Holman Hunt, he wants to go to Jerusalem to see the background to the life of Christ that he's trying to paint. So you've got that going on. You've also got John Everett Millet 
in Rossetti's terms, selling out and becoming an associate of the Royal Academy, taking that recognition from the establishment, of which Rossetti was never offered and didn't want anyway, even if he'd been offered it, he would say. But for, for Millet, why not? You know, be recognised, have a, a way to, to have a voice. And also he was a young married man who was having babies, you know, quite regularly. Once he and Effie married, Effie had eight children. He needed to earn a living. Millet needed to earn a living. That was the reality of it. I mean, that's why people make art. Yes, they make it for the beauty of it and for the sentiment of it, but they also make art to make a living. And there's also this sense that what the sort of art that matters to them is not coalescing any longer. So William Holman Hunt sees one of Rossetti's paintings and is shocked by the sensuality of it. He's shocked by the fleshiness of it. And this is before the criticism of the poems and everything. It's in anticipation of that. And it's this amazing painting called Bocca Bacciata. A Bocca Bacciata means the kissed mouth. And it's not a big painting and it's on wood and so which sort of harks back to that early Renaissance, late medieval feel of painting on wood. And it's just a woman's sort of bust length image. It's a portrait, a fancy portrait of Fanny Cornforth and with this amazing red gold hair and a marigold in her hair. And she's looking very appealing, very attractive. And it's representing... um a story from the Decameron, from Boccaccio's Decameron, about a woman who goes all the way around the world having love affairs and marriages with many, many people. But her mouth, even though it's been kissed many times, is still as refreshed as the moon is every month. So Boccaccio, meaning the kissed mouth, it's still a beautiful mouth, it's still worthy of being kissed. And the original owner of Boccaccio used to kiss the painting. I mean, that's how sexy it is in Victorian terms. And we have to remember that this is, you know, the 1850s, 1860s. So this is not what William Holman Hunt wanted to get involved with. He wanted to distance himself from Rossetti. So yes, you do get the breakdown in their relationships. And even at the end of their careers, you know, each of them, Millet and Holman Hunt and Rossetti, they all claim to be the kind of the real pre-Raphaelite in their memoirs. They were holding the flame of pre-Raphaelitism because by that point it is, you know, it did make its mark. It was so important in Britain and in America and in France. So, yeah, they want to have their name attached to it. I think that would be great to hear more of, actually, is, is what, what sort of sense of scale, like how famous were they in their day? Is that something we can sort of characterise here from? So in the 1840s and 1850s, they weren't particularly famous. They were like many young artists sort of starting out and making a name for themselves, by the end of the century, they are recognised as the key figures in transforming British art. And their works are being reproduced, particularly Rossetti, who in some ways is the, one of the most you know, mysterious in his own lifetime. He dies in 1882, but after there's a big show, um, posthumous show in 82, 83, and so suddenly lots of works come out of private collections and and some people say, you know, this is all a bit, uh, all a bit samey. You know, he has one one type that he keeps painting, and other people say, no, this is this is fabulous. This is what art can be. It is a step forward for thinking about how art and poetry can can interlink. So, you know, he is 
incredibly important as a poet as well. So his poetry is set to music by people like Debussy. It's translated particularly into French. And then, you know, artists like Edward Byrne-Jones, you know, following in the pre-Raphaelite tradition, become extremely highly regarded, particularly in France and, and Belgium, and also in, in Central Europe, largely through reproductions. So it's worth remembering that for all of these artists, perhaps except Rossetti, who didn't go in for big print runs, but for Millet and Holman Hunt in particular, and later on for Edward Byrne-Jones, one of the ways they made their money was by selling the copyright for their works of art uh, so that they could be reprinted in large-scale engravings. And this is what, you know, promoted their works. So something like The Light of the World, which was painted by William Holman Hunt. The original is quite small. It's in Keble College Chapel in Oxford. And then he painted a couple of other versions of it. It's a figure of Christ metaphorically sort of knocking on the door of the human heart, holding a small lantern in a wood. And it's this sense of, you know, encountering a figure of Christ that was very moving for many people. They, you know, when the paintings toured around the empire, you know, th th these paintings were being seen, the originals as well as the prints were being seen in places when there were no art galleries, but the, this work of art was being exhibited as a standalone experience and a spiritual experience, you know, like going to church, like attending a service. So for for someone like William Holman Hunt, this process of reproduction and touring made him a name across the world. With John Everett Millet as well, you get <laughs> most famously and most upsettingly for him, you know, one of his works, which was a picture of his grandson playing with a with soap bubbles. Then the copyright was sold and then sold again to the makers of Pear Soap, and it became a poster for Pear Soap. And he had no intention of that happening. He was looking at 18th century portraiture. He was looking at ideas about mortality. And he painted this picture of his little grandson. And then suddenly it's out of his hands and it's all across the world with, you know, soap all over it. So there's a flip side to this ability to reproduce and to make money through the reproductions. Right. So they've clearly got a legacy, whether they would have wanted it or not, in the commercial world and the art world. Can we dig a little more into some of those common misconceptions you mentioned? You, you mentioned women being in the, this sphere as, as much more than sort of the silent muses they might have perhaps been perceived as in the past. Can we go perhaps a little more into that and, and some other misconceptions as well? So I think one of the very interesting things is about the, the networks of women and women as makers as well as models uh, through the, the pre-Raphaelite group. Um, so even someone like Christina Rossetti, who to a certain extent was sidelined to begin with, is able to put her works, her poetry into their magazines and is to have her poetry illustrated by her brother. So there is this sort of uh, symbiosis of the poetry and the visual, which helps her along and gives her confidence, I think, to keep writing and to keep publishing. Because stepping into publishing is hard for women. Stepping into exhibiting is very hard for women because they don't have the same just basic practical training as artists. So someone like Elizabeth Siddle, her works of art were seen mostly at home 
or being bought by someone like John Ruskin, who would then show them to his friends. So it was there was a sort of a private circulation of her works of art. And I think it's also really worth noting someone like Georgie Byrne-Jones, Edward Byrne-Jones's young wife, as a writer, because without her, we would not have the stories. We would not know what was going on in the 1850s and early 1860s when everybody was gathering at Red House, which was William and Jane Morris's house, when Elizabeth Siddle was was there painting on the walls, when they were painting the furniture, when they were setting up their arts and crafts business. You know, Georgie Byrne-Jones is the person who not only collects all the material, all the evidence, but she writes it up in such a way that she sort of makes it seem so alive and so fresh. So we sometimes forget that work that is put in as well. You also get a whole group of artists who are able to sort of ride on the back of the of the pre-Raphaelite group through the arts and crafts movement, because these two things really can't be pulled apart. There's so many overlaps. And so many women who are involved in translating drawings and designs into textiles, into ceramics. So they're not just there as as models. They're not just there as the pretty face. They're also the people who are, you know, stitching. They're also the people who are making the tiles. So these things, there is work still to be done. We still don't have a full picture of how individual women contributed to Morris and Company in the early days, for example, or even if they were paid for it, or whether it was just seen as kind of something that they would get on with in their spare time. But when you look at a woman like Jane Morris, who is such a strong image, particularly in Rossetti's work, and you think of her just as that kind of passive surface, in fact, you know, she was working hard all the time as an embroiderer, as an organiser of a show home, as somebody who was involved in the transformation of costume and what women would wear, and also as a as a maker of small books herself. So she was making uh, commonplace or keepsake books for friends and for herself. And these were quite complex designed works, and they're now in the British Library. So like Georgie Byrne-Jones, she felt that urge to make things. And that sense that by the end of the 19th century, women have gained access to formal artistic education. They have been able to establish networks of art and poetry and sisterhood that is kind of parallel to what the, the Brotherhood were doing in the 1840s. I think that that is a story that we were trying to tell. But it's only in the last 15, 20 years that we've really been able to sort of gather that material. It's very gratifying to hear those stories be further told. Are there any other myths or misconceptions about the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood that you think need to be laid to rest? Well, I think one of the things that people assume is that Elizabeth Siddle died because she was in the bathtub posing for Ophelia. She did get ill. She got caught Basically, she was lying in this bathtub in the beautiful dress, but it was supposed to be heated and there were little burners underneath the bath, but the burners went out. And so she just lay there being a you know a good model, not not messing with the, the picture, but became quite ill afterwards. Now, what's really interesting is that she didn't die then, but her father came round to Millet's house and said, you need to reimburse us for her lost income 
because she can't work. So her work as a model was not a sideline. It was not a little something extra. Elizabeth's little work as a model was valued by her family, needed by her family. It was a professional position in some ways, you know. I mean, Elizabeth Siddle, some of the poses she was expected to take, particularly in the early days, incredibly hard to um, to sustain. And she had the physicality to do that. So I think, yes, she did die in 1862, really sadly. She had been ill for some time. She was addicted to opiates. And she took an overdose after she had a stillborn child and seems to have suffered very badly from, I mean, understandably, from postnatal depression and took an overdose and died in... It's unclear whether it was deliberate or not. But, you know, because of that tragedy and because, you know, there was a a certain sort of hushing up of what happened and then because of what happened next. So this is gives you a sense of of Rosetti's peculiarities. So his wife dies, he's distraught, and when she is buried, he places the manuscript of his poems on the lid of her coffin, and she is buried with this manuscript book. Seven years later, he realises he really needs those, he really, really needs those poems back. He hasn't got copies of a lot of them, and he needs to publish them. You know, he's got to a point where he needs to boost his reputation as a poet again. So he arranges for Elizabeth Siddle to be dug up, to be exhumed. And it's all done officially. It's all done through the church. But it's also a really difficult thing for him and his friends to get their heads around. And the correspondence around that time about who knew and how much they knew, and it's all quite distasteful. You know, yeah, he retrieves the manuscript and it's not in great shape and it has to be disinfected and it's got holes in it but also as on the back of that there becomes this urban myth that Elizabeth Siddle's body had not decomposed that her hair was still growing that she was still as beautiful as she ever was and these things kind of get out of hand and become uh, really quite unpleasantly associated with vampirism at the end of the century. So someone like Bram Stoker, who's writing about Dracula and writing about sort of the femme fatale and the the vampire women, there seems to be quite a lot of overlap with discussions of what Elizabeth Siddle looked like after death and the fact that she was sort of undead. So these things have, again, clouded our understanding of her as a real woman, as a woman who had intelligence and ambition and and talent. There are ways in which we can redress the balance, I think, in, in terms of thinking about the biographies of these people, particularly the women, but also the complexities of the men. I mean, someone like Gabriel Rossetti did himself have severe mental health problems, you know, attempted suicide, um, paranoia, drug addiction. And I think... It's not glamorous. It's not artistic. It's really sad and hard when you read these letters. So learning about the Pre-Raphaelites allows us to think about, you know, these people and about their experiences, as well as about the art, as well as about the sort of things they were reading, the pictures they were looking at. I think that's one of the great attractions of this group of artists is that they lead us into so many different 
paths of of history and poetry and spirituality and experience, your human experience. A lot indeed. And and thank you so much for, for taking us into a lot of it today. I know there are a lot of pictures I'm going to be Googling after this. But if we can leave our listeners with a final sort of onward journey, where would you direct anyone next to view more, see more, learn more about this group of artists? One of the great things about the Pre-Raphaelites is that their works of art are all over Britain and, in fact, all over the English-speaking world. So you can see stained glass designs by Rossetti and by Ford Maddox Brown, for example, in Scarborough or in Scotland. You can go to India and see designs by Edward Byrne Jones that were transformed into stained glass windows across the Indian subcontinent. You know, closer to home, we have amazing regional collections. You know, there were so many 19th century industrialists who were wanting to buy new art, modern art, British art, who didn't want to fill their houses with old masters, who wanted something that was now. They wanted to show how on the ball they were. And so if you go to Liverpool or if you go to Leeds or Manchester, Birmingham, all of these places have great collections, not just paintings, but also uh, drawings, works of art, uh, sculpture. And even in small-scale collections like Southampton, you know, they have a complete suite of Burne Jones' Perseus series. Amazing things to see. In London, the real sort of gems are at Tate Britain. But there's also, you know, really beautiful millets in the Fitzwilliam in Cambridge and in the Ashmolean in Oxford, partly because of the relationship with John Ruskin, who was their mentor in the early days. And there was a, a collector called Thomas Coombe in Oxford who bought The Light of the World when it first uh, was commissioned and a number of really extraordinary early pre-Raphaelite paintings. So you're never more than, you know, an hour's drive from some amazing pre-Raphaelite works in Britain. That was Suzanne Fagence Cooper. Her books include Pre-Raphaelite Art in the V&A Museum, published by V&A Enterprises in 2003, and The Model Wife, Effie Gray, Ruskin and Millet, published by Duckworth in 2010. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. <laughs>